This is the You Are Not Listening to This podcast. And this is Will James. If I were to say that there were too many gods in heaven, and that it's a problem, would you know what I mean? I mean, I know monotheism has taken the lion's share of the market on belief, and the one god of the Abrahamic religious traditions won out. I get it. Gone are the days where the next tribe over with its set of gods with various names and purposes, powers, origin stories, rules, and modes of a divine appeasement would be compared, contrasted, and fought over with the gods of our own tribes. Instead, we are opposed to dichotomy. There either is a god, or there's not one. But is it really that simple? Has monotheism actually reduced the number of gods humanity believes in? Or has it simply placed a cap on the acceptable names for that god? We have Yahweh, Allah, God the Father. We're no longer too concerned with Apollo or Zeus, Ra, Osiris, Marduk, Baal, Moloch, or any female representations of divinity. We see less and less value in their stories and legends or the wisdom that may be contained within. We only need the scriptures. In annihilating God's opposition, these alternative angles from which other cultures have envisioned the mystery, we rooted out many potential negative traits, to be sure. But we also place borders around what God can be. He can only be what you can confirm from the Bible. And he must be what's already been confirmed from the Bible, for better or for worse. If you can find a verse, or even half a verse, to loosely fit a situation that you're encountering, you can then determine what God's will is, or what God would want, what God prefers, or how God feels about your situation and even those that put you there. God can be love or wrath. God can be creator or destroyer unchanging or easily negotiable. God can divinely protect a sinner or make bets with the devil over a saint. God can stand with the oppressed and even be the wise guide that divinely upholds the office of their oppressor. God can be whatever the believer wants, whatever the believer believes. And believe me, believers come in all forms. There are as many gods in heaven as there are people that believe in a God of heaven. Some gods are an amalgamation of characteristics of our closest ancestors, our righteous elders, Big Mama and them. The things that bother them the most describe the categories of what might most anger or offend God. The things that they loved reveal a realm of what pleases him the most. The verses they repeated or the hymns they hummed over the stove in despair, anguish, contemplation, excitement, and exacerbation. They often bring us similar comforts when we find ourselves in the same emotive spheres. They anchor God's truths, his covenants, and promises. Our world, God's creation, is molded by their worldviews. God's grace mirrors their patience in both abundance and limitation. 
love, forgiveness, and sin are all defined by their models, evidence in their discipline and discipleship, and codified in their beliefs, experiences, interpretations, and assumptions, passed down and adapted through the generations, by the generations. Some gods are formed around these ancestral legacies, and others are formed in direct opposition to them. Still other gods are formed by the mosaic of images that were presented to us, or the countless sermons we heard in churches that we respected over our lifetimes. God looks like the moods our pastors were in from week to week, or the declarations of guest ministers whose different tone and pacing resonated in our memories. God looks like the directions and the descriptions we downloaded from the week-long youth camps, tent meetings, evangelistic efforts, and theme-specific seminars we attended. God looks like the denominational views that limited the theological spheres that our ministers could learn from, specialize in, and speak on without risking their employment. Often our gods are also shaped by the emotions that we're in when we pray attend church services or simply open the Bible to read it? Do we do it in times of distress, times of grief, celebration? Do we do it for inspiration, obligation? Is it meditative or self-discipline? Are we looking for rules to live by or wisdom for the tension that living presents? Do we look for confirmation, consideration, or correction? And how good are we at reading comprehension in the first damn place? How much of the original context was enough context to no longer look for more context? How much context is simply lost on a 21st century capitalist in the modern West? What interpretations do we prefer? What rules, assumptions are built into that choice? And what beliefs do we hold as necessarily true that necessarily rely on that choice? And why? Ultimately, our gods become a sum total of our individual experiences in this mystery. Meaning, a lot of gods are simply all-powerful, perfect, ideal versions of ourselves. Gods like what we'd be like if we could just drop our flaws. You know, it's interesting. In my religious tradition, a lot of emphasis and spotlight is, is placed on a person's testimony. It seems that much more often than not, when people come to Christ or get saved or accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior or whatever you might call it in your tradition, they commonly stop doing something and try to stop doing a few other things as they go from there to here. I used to drink. I used to use foul language. I used to have a drug problem or a pornography problem or a gambling problem. But you'd rarely hear someone talk about the practical things they should start doing, characteristics or habits to pick up and add to their own repertoire to become Christ-like, which is what Christian means. To be more like Christ is somehow become being a little less like ourselves. As if our gods are us with the dials turned down. And I think that's why maybe our gods have so much patience with us. Or at least give us so many second and third chances. 
when it doesn't work the same for some other people. Our little sins aren't that big a deal, right? We know, and they know that we know, and they're working on them with us. We're not like those other people whose sins are more disgraceful, or abominable, or cherished. Our God's perfect world looks an awful lot like our perfect world, which very rarely looks like a the first will be last kind of place. Our gods would vote how we want to vote, even if we have turned that around in our own heads. They forgive who and what we would forgive, and they're disgusted by who and what disgusts us. They want us to have favor, and that often looks a lot like money or comfort or minimal conflict, you know, like Jesus' life. They divinely love the things that we don't want to lose and dispositively agree that the things and people that we dislike are evil. Whatever God is, he, she, it, is all about something. Justice, or piety, obedience, or judgment, or grace, or compassion, or prosperity, acceptance, or heteronormativity chastity or sacrifice or delayed gratification whatever is the thing that we find either easiest to work on or the most difficult depending on how masochistic we are what this means is that though we've dwindled down the names and the legends in the name of monotheism there are more gods today than there have ever been we use the same names verses Christianese to speak about God but we are often not on the same page when Christian churches in recent years have fallen into existential crisis over whether or not an American president was chosen by God or the Antichrist or which party can a Christian join claim and support the issue was really never politics these are disagreements about who God is Not just what tools an overseeing God may choose to use at his disposal, but fundamentally what kind of God is the real one. I wasn't raised to believe in the same God as, say, Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or those emphasizing a God of abundant prosperity. I wasn't raised to believe in the same God as Kenneth Copeland and Paula White, that's for sure. I don't recognize the God they serve. But that is not to question their belief or their sincerity or their biblical knowledge per se. I'm sure they can run laps around me. I'm simply making the point that when we each bow our heads and say, our father who art in heaven, in a very real and fundamental way, the isness that we think we're talking to is not the same. Now, the God I was raised to believe in has his own problems to be sure and if I have a point it probably exists somewhere tangentially around this thought see I think we all know that there's a wide range of belief out there we wouldn't have all these denominations if there weren't fundamental disagreements about the character of God amongst us Baptists are not Methodists who are not Pentecostal or Catholic or Lutheran Episcopalian, Mormon Adventist or Jehovah's Witness 
conservative evangelicals and secular humanist Christians are not the same. We know this. We've maybe never considered that the things we're disagreeing about are actually characteristics of the deity we consider to be the only one that exists. But we know this. The thing is, it doesn't really bother us because we're tribal people. We like our groups. Our groups are defined by contrasting them with yours. We feel very comfortable knowing that our own personal network is of the same mindset, and if that means it's a different mindset than yours, that's okay. Because we're here. But over time, a lot of us come to find out that we don't necessarily agree on what God is, even within the littlest and closest knit of these bubbles, of these communities. The kids in our youth groups, our best friends from high school that we haven't talked to in a few years, but were maybe each other's spiritual support. The siblings we sat next to in the pews. Our parents who we thought taught us who God was. Every single one of us at some point, we all internalized it differently. Somewhere, some pixel, some synapse fires just a little bit different. And if you discuss the mystery long enough, you realize that really no two of us fully agree. And if you're from a biblically liberal environment, that may be pretty obvious. But those of us from the literalist certainty camp, I mean, that can be kind of jarring. See, maybe our denominations have specific rules and guidelines for the Christian life. And maybe we in our church communities agree on those rules and guidelines. But do we agree on why they're important? Are there requirements, obligations, outward signs of commitment done altruistically, acts of love, acts of subjugation, acts to appease or acts to please, acts for God or acts for our fellow humans, afterlife insurance, evidence of salvation, election? What happens to us if we stop following some of them? And how might the answer to that question inform our answers to the previous ones? What happens to other believers that are ever bit as devoted as us, but who follow a different set of rules and guidelines that they pulled from the same Bible? Now for some of us, seeing these alternate gods within our own tribe came easier. Maybe we're ethnically or economically diverse from the majority of our congregations. Switching back and forth highlights these differences. For example, in some communities, the Exodus is a story about God's exhibition of power. The ten plagues in Egypt, conquering evil kings and their gods, and establishing the superiority of the one. It's the story of the awesome power of our God, and how he won, and how we win now that we're part of his kingdom. It's a story of conquest, victory. For others, the Exodus is about God after generations of suffering, finally liberating his people. After these injustices and the fear of being abandoned, the one God finally made things right. It's the story of long suffering and maintaining hope in a God now for future deliverance in a kingdom yet to come. It's not victory, 
it's hope. We don't even really need to get into the theological realms or the biblical stories for our different gods to reveal themselves. Maybe hearing your deacon's philosophy on giving money to panhandlers or the value of social programs for people who, you know, won't help themselves. After pushing all that bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house line. Pretty strong from the pulpit. Or hearing the usher comment on your fiancé wearing pants in the sanctuary when to that point you didn't even know God was a 1950s television executive. Coming out. Unexpected pregnancies. The way your dad talked to your mom after the divorce. A spouse's infidelity in the face of the vows that you both made before your God. A parent's refusal to forgive someone that you've chosen to forgive only because of how that parent raised you. Or a parent forgiving something you simply can't yet because of exactly how that parent raised you. Asking what does it mean to be a Christian or what if Genesis is a bunch of metaphors and allegories or how could you have possibly voted for that guy at the Thanksgiving dinner table? Sooner or later, you'll find out that regardless of common religion or sect, denomination, congregation, study groups, and households, even the people that shaped God for you imagine an entirely different one themselves. They're as devoted to theirs as you are to yours, if not more so. And on top of that, many of us are completely certain about it. Certain enough to see no problem in the genocide of native peoples who inconveniently already inhabited our promised lands. Certain enough to fly planes into buildings to teach the infidels. Certain enough to go to war. Certain enough to disown their own children. Certain enough to voluntarily submit to partners who abuse that disposition. Certain enough to believe your abuse of that disposition is your divine right. Certain enough to hate and harm others. Certain enough to hate and harm ourselves. Certain enough to feel that if we don't change, God intends to harm us too. So much certainty. When it's just another God. There are too many gods in heaven. And it's a problem. This has been You Are Not Listening to This.